stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni. John is on vacation this week, so I am joined by my distinguished colleague here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Kara Rollins, one of the litigation counsel here at NCLA. And you have been working uh, with our colleague Harriet Hageman on a very interesting piece of litigation that I wanted to bring on the program uh, to discuss. This is Todd Hennis v. United States of America. And for our our radio listeners out in Colorado, this is a Colorado case. Can you remind us? We've talked about uh, Harriet's been on the program before. We've talked about this pro, pro excuse me. We've talked about this lawsuit before. But can you remind uh, our audience what this case is about? Happy to. And I always say when I explain this to other folks that this is probably one of our wildest cases, and that it's the underlying facts are probably some of the most well known. And it's a pretty straightforward and pretty offensive. Uh, thing the government did here. So back in 2015... And a, a blatant power grab, you might say. <laughs> blatant power grab. A physically noted power grab. Um, back in on August 5th, 2015... Seven years ago this week? Yep, this week. Uh, the EPA was uh, up at our client Todd Hennessy's property, and they were working on the Gold King Mine. And uh, through a series of, we'll call it a comedy of errors, but essentially everything you're not supposed to do when checking the levels of water in an abandoned mine shaft, um, they but the, did. But, but these were the experts. This these was, were the this, experts, these yeah. These were the EPA. How could they possibly, you know, not to know what they were doing? Well, as I say, the, the great irony of this is the EPA managed to cause one of the largest environmental catastrophes in recent memory. You, um, you, you, you say that it's ironic. I, I mm, Predictable it was another <laughs> word that comes to mind. <laughs> Something to be expected. Um, and so what happened was, and, you know, the way to think about this is, it's down in southwest Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. Um, and, you know, there it's a historic mining area. The mountains down there are effectively like Swiss cheese. So water's leaked in over time. It creates hydrostatic pressure. Good way to think about this is, like, think about a water balloon when you're a kid. And if you're holding the top of that water balloon, there's, like, the thick area of rubber. And you can stick a pin in there, and the balloon won't pop. But if you come into the side of it, the balloon's going to explode. So what the EPA effectively did is instead of coming into the top and seeing how high the water was, they just sort of popped a hole in it, which then caused about 3 million gallons of acidic mine water and about 880,000, I believe, pounds of heavy metals to be released into the Animus River, floated all the way downriver, affected... And, and, and these heavy metals, this isn't, even though this was a gold mine, that these metals aren't all gold. No, this is no. All, this is a lot a of mixture. really bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, you know, you can even see sitting in there, I was out there in May with Harriet um, and visiting with Todd on the property, and you can see still in the river to the extent um, the, the heavy metals have sunk to the bottom, and there's sort of a different color about it. I mean, the water is now being treated by the EPA, and that's sort and of and the we'll base of this case. <laughs> um, but, you know, this, this gross water over the course of a week flooded out of the mine, downstream, affected communities in Colorado, Utah, um, New Mexico, and the Navajo Nation. And it launched no less than, I think, five or ten lawsuits yeah. as a result, including ours, well, this for various the, reasons. Well, this was the Orange River scene around the world, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's it's sort of if you know our listeners are looking are curious about this, you can just Google it and you'll see coverage from CNN and, and all the major media Absolutely. channels. And it's it's wild to see. I mean, there was congressional hearings on this. It was it was a big problem back then and continues to be a problem for Todd today. A-N-I-M-A-S, Animus, Animus River? Yep. Okay. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention while I'm thinking about it is we have a video coming out this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks can go to our uh, to our website, nclalegal.org, and look at our videos there. They can go to our YouTube channel and look at videos there. We will be putting out a case video about the Hennis case mm-hmm. uh, this week. So I invite folks uh, to do that. But you were getting ready to, to tell us. So where does the, the lawsuit stand now? So uh, we filed our lawsuit back in uh, 2001, uh, alleging a, a taking. Couldn't of- be 2001. Sorry, 2021. 2021, there we go. That's, uh, that's 21 on the paper. <laughs> you weren't old enough to file a lawsuit in 2001. That is true. Sad to say I was. But, um, but yeah, so back in 2021, um, actually just about a year or a year ago this week, because we filed it in August. Um, and so essentially we said the government has taken Mr. Hennis's property. Um, and they haven't paid him a single dime since they did this. And so what happened was after the sort of a, a, the breach of the facility, which caused the first sort of flow, um, the EPA contacted Mr. Hennis and said, you know, can we come on? We need to do some emergency staging. And Mr. Hennis said, yes, you can come on for this emergency staging. Because he cares about the land He cares the about the land. Obviously, this, yeah. is, this is property he owns. He doesn't want it to be uh, polluted. Exactly. And, and to understand this land, it's actually made of three different mining claims. So he had essentially said, yes, you can come on to the Gladstone property, Whatever you do, don't go on to the Herbert Placer. Well, what did the EPA do? Ignore that completely. And not only did they go on to the Herbert Placer um, section, they proceeded to build a $2.3 million water treatment facility without his knowledge or telling him as much. And that's what the basis of this lawsuit is, right? They've taken his property. They've built this filtration plant. Um, They have at least indicated in, in prior discussions that they may want to continue operations through at least 2028. Um, so that would be 13 years of operations without, again, no paying compensation. Him anything. No compensation. And here's the plot twist that makes this even sort of worse. As I said, it, the wild aspect of it. They have threatened him under CERCLA and the Clean Water Act um, to, if he stops them from coming onto his land, it's roughly $59,000 a day in fines, right? And so one of the things that we make a point of saying is this entire thing has been coerced. Whatever sort of access he's granted, one was limited in the first place, and now the continuing access is subject to this threat of $59,000 a day. I mean, and that, they violated the permission he gave in the first place exactly. by going on a part of the property that he said stay yeah, away from. And and you know, $59,000 is a lot of money. I think it's like twice the national average of what the average American makes. I mean, it's these aren't small fines. And, and so it would be a daily fine if he didn't cooperate. Daily with accruing interest is my understanding. Hmm. So this is this is your federal government at work. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency comes onto your property, uh, destroys your property, uh, creates a massive environmental problem, then takes your property in order to build a water treatment facility on it. By the way, is there any federal land nearby where the government could have built a water treatment plant instead? Yeah, so there's substantial federal land holdings there. There's um, Bureau of Land Management, BLM, has property that's roughly adjacent, has access to um, the water, which would need to be be pulled and treated. Um, and so what the government has essentially said, in my understanding at least of their argument, I should say, 
is, well, this property was a little better situated than ours. So instead of doing the, the obvious thing, you, the government using its land for governmental purposes, it decided to just go and take somebody else's land because it was easier. And that, that should be concerning to most folks. That is, that is not surprising, but it is, it is disturbing. Uh, is, uh, is, there a, uh, is there anything happening in the near future in the litigation? So we just received a notice from the Court of Federal Claims where this was filed, um, and we'll be having oral argument on August 30th in the, for the motion to dismiss, which for our listeners, essentially the government has told us as its first filing, nothing to see here. You guys don't have a claim. You know, you have no, you know, you can't be here. Go away, which is essentially what they've been telling Mr. Hennis for the past seven years. But, um, you know, we're obviously going to defend that vigorously. We feel that the law is on our side and we believe that this is something that's going to go to trial. And we're going to be able to prove not just that they took the land, but, you know, the, that the substantial damages and harms that have been caused um, to Mr. Hennis as a result. Well, and there's no statutory authority for the EPA to come in and take people's land without compensation. That that doesn't exist. No, it's directly counter to the Constitution. You know, Fifth Amendment, you know, it says you cannot take property without just compensation. It's clear as day. Right. No private property for public use without just compensation. Uh, what is he looking for here? Is he looking for just compensation for the past and then looking for to sort of kick them off of the land going forward? Or is he willing to sell the land as long as he gets a, uh, a market value for it? What's, what's the, you know, what are the damages that you're looking for in the case? A little column A, a little bit of column B. I mean, we do have two claims. We have one for a permanent taking and one for a temporary taking. So there's different calculations that come into play. Um, we've sort of looked at it with our expert and said this is at least a $3.7 million issue plus interest. Um, and that's something that, you know, I hope that we survive the motion to dismiss and we're going to be able to take that trial and prove that number. And if you get to that stage, do you get a jury? Um, oh, you know what? I don't actually know. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't, don't believe in court of federal claims. I don't think there is. I have, I've never heard of a jury yeah. in the court of federal claims uh, because this is the court that the government set up to allow you to sue the government, right? So the government makes the rules. Yeah. Uh, it's, but it's, at least it's not the EPA. This isn't, unlike some of our other litigation we talk about on this show a lot where we're representing uh, people in front of the SEC whom the SEC is suing or in front of the FTC whom the FTC is suing, at least the Court of Federal Claims is independent of EPA. That's correct. And, you know, and they're, they're a highly specialized court, too. They, they do these takings claims um, and other sort of money damages cases against the government as well as a significant amount of our, our patent law. So they, they're very familiar with how, you know, these types of takings cases operate. Terrific. Well, so you said this is just over the motion to dismiss on August 30th. That's what the oral argument will, That's will be about. And do you, uh, so who is arguing on the opposite side of that case? Is it the EPA? Is it the Department of Justice? Uh, uh, my understanding is that it, it, it is uh, staff from the Department of Justice on behalf of the EPA. Um, but we'll wait. I don't believe the actual who is arguing has been entered yet. Okay. Do you know your judge yet? Has that been uh, no, that's sort of okay. still being established. We were, I guess there were some changes in, in the bench makeup, so we'll have to, to take a look at that and see who will be uh, presiding over this. Terrific. Well, anything else that our audience uh, should know, particularly those folks out in, in Colorado? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, I had the opportunity, as I said earlier, to go down to the property in Bay and actually see it. And I, I encourage everyone to watch our video because, you know, I'd seen photos of the property and what was built. And it's not until you're 
driving up along the creek through the mountain valley and you come on and you can sort of see how big this facility is. It's about five, I believe it's about five acres. And in my mind, I thought I could conceptualize what that is. But when you see it and where it's situated, it's the only usable land in that area. Um, and so obviously the, the taking is particularly harsh because it kills future Right, yeah, most tenants can't do anything else with his own land. Well, it's it's terrible. Thank you, Kara, for defending Mr. Ennis in this uh, action, and thank you for appearing on Investor Second. Thanks for having me. to Administrative Static. John Vecchioni is on vacation this week, so you just have me, but I'm pleased to be joined with, uh, joined by one of my colleagues here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. I think for the first time on Administrative Static, uh, Russ Ryan is Senior Litigation Counsel at NCLA. Welcome to the program, Russ. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, glad to be here. This is my first time. Well, we, uh, we have a very interesting case to talk about that you were the lead author of the amicus brief, uh, and the, the case is uh, Harry Calcutt, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The FDIC is that agency you see in the bank window when you do the drive-through uh, teller, right? They, they insure uh, funds at, uh, at retail banks, among other things. And there's a, a problem, apparently, with the, as, there, as we've discovered, there is a problem with, with how the administrative law judges are protected with multiple layers of tenure at a lot of different uh, federal agencies. But the, the decision here is a little different than what we've seen in other cases. The, the Sixth Circuit handed down a decision, Russ, and now we, what we have filed is a amicus brief in support of en banc reconsideration by the, by the full Sixth Circuit. But let's start, if you could tell the audience what happened or what the panel decided uh, at, the, at the panel level here in the Sixth Circuit. Sure, well, one of, the, one of the other functions the FDIC performs is an enforcement function, and Mr. Calcott, uh, got himself uh, embroiled in that. Uh, the agency ended up uh, basically removing him from the banking industry and imposing a monetary penalty on him. Um, the traditional route when you want to challenge something like that is to go to a circuit court of appeals. Uh, Mr. Calcutt ended up in the Sixth Circuit um, After going through the whole administrative adjudication process, correct. this is this is post that he then appeals to the Sixth Circuit, right? And not and yeah, importantly, that process takes a long time. I think he was in it for more than five years, okay. which is not uncommon in these uh, agency adjudications. Um, but the panel was ju judges Boggs, Griffin, and Murphy. My old um, judge. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Um, and it was a split decision. Uh, Judge Murphy agreed with the majority on the issues that we primarily care about. Um, so it was effectively unanimous on the removal protection issue. Um, but he parted ways with the majority on some statutory construction issues and um, Chenery issues um, that we did not address in the amicus brief. Our, our primary focus was on the removal protection issue. Um, and as we've done in other cases, uh, our position is that 
administrative law judges if they have more than a single level of removal protection um, are operating unconstitutionally and there ought to be a remedy for that. Um, right, and this panel uh, it, it hinted at the fact that, that there probably was a problem with the tenure protection uh, for the ALJs, but it, it really refused to, to reach that question, didn't it? I mean, that's, that's what's yeah, odd here. Actually, the, the panel in dictum suggested that they did not think there was a constitutional problem oh, okay. here. Um, I'm not sure how they get there in light of the precedent we've seen in free enterprise and uh, Celia Law and Collins and, and, and so forth. Um, but well, they maybe we should be glad they didn't reach the question. Yeah, <laughs> maybe so. Um, but in my view, they put the cart before the horse. They basically looked forward and said, well, it's a complicated issue. But we, we really don't need to decide it because even if Calcutt is right on that issue, we can't afford him any remedy at all. And they relied heavily on the Supreme Court's decision in Collins against Yellen, in which the court um, provided what I would call Pyrrhic victory to the petitioner in that case. They found that the removal protections um, in that case were unconstitutional, but basically said, okay, so they're unconstitutional, but we're not going to do much about the water that's already gone under the bridge uh, as a result of that agency's actions. Here, it was a different context. This was a review from a quasi-criminal agency adjudication. So as we point out in the brief, Calcutt was quasi-criminal and yet no jury was ever involved here at any point in time, right? Right. Um, Calcutt was on basically on defense throughout the proceeding. Um, the proceedings like Calcutt's in administrative adjudication don't provide robust discovery and certainly not on a constitutional issue like this one um, where the agency as the panel majority recognized in this case really doesn't have the expertise or the, the competence to decide those issues. So it really um, was kind of catch 22 for Calcutt where he really had no opportunity to develop a record to prove that he was harmed by the constitutional violation he was alleging. But when he got to the Sixth Circuit the majority and for that matter, Judge Murphy in dissent basically said, well, even if the ALJs are unconstitutional because of their tenure protection, we can't do anything for you because you have not proved or you have not um, at least credibly alleged that you, you were harmed directly and proximately by the fact that the ALJ may not have been removable by the president, um, which is kind of an impossible burden. Well, especially at least as I read the, the decision that the court is saying, you have to show that you've been distinctly harmed in some way that's different from how everyone else is harmed by having to appear in front of an unconstitutional adjudicator. And, and I would have thought that 
no, it's not distinctive. I have the exact same harm as everyone who appears in front of an unconstitutional adjudicator. And that's the whole problem. It's, it seemed like the panel missed the point. Yeah, I, in fairness, um, you know, it's not a completely unfair reading of Collins to say that the court, in that case at least, looked for something concrete that the petitioner can point to. For, but, but it's never gonna happen. I mean, you can speculate you know, presidents don't generally go around saying, I wish I could fire that ALJ, but shoot, the, the, the statute prevents me, so I guess I'm stuck with them. Those well, things just don't happen. That, that doesn't happen. The other thing that doesn't happen is that as people are appearing in front of an adjudicator who controls their fate, I mean, he's getting booted from the industry, which his whole career has been built on. You're, you're supposed to sit there and, and con consistently raise in front of the judge all the ways in which the judge is unconstitutional and distinctly injuring you and, and so forth. I mean, that's, you're prejudicing your own adjudicator against you if you engage in that kind of behavior, it seems to me. Yeah, or, or ask for discovery on whether the president has ever called you to berate you about one of your prior opinions <laughs> and you told them to go take a hike because you have tenure protection. It's, it's just unrealistic. It's fanciful. Uh, yeah, it, it is. Really is. It is. Well, and, and I think importantly, the other argument that you make, I mean, the first argument in, in the amicus brief that you filed encouraging the Sixth Circuit to hear this case on Bach is that the panel's no remedy, therefore no decision approach uh, was erroneous. We've, we've talked about that. But the second point you make is that the panel's ruling really disincentivizes anyone from bringing a removal protection challenge, because if, there's, if, if the courts on appeal are going to say, well, there is no remedy for you, then what is the point of bringing one of these removal protection challenges and, and how will these tenure violations be, be corrected? It seems like they'll persist indefinitely if people in Mr. Calcutt's position aren't allowed to challenge them. Yeah, this is an important point because um, courts have recognized that when it comes to separation of powers, it's usually not the elected branches that are protective of their turf. They're, they're some extent they conspire together to create these unconstitutional entities and it it's more often than not individual litigants who are affected by a separation of powers issue that actually go to court and endure the years of litigation to make the point that as we've seen in some of these cases the victory at the end of the road is often pyrrhic um, but the court is recognized in a number of cases, including a case called the, the Supreme Court uh, in Ryder in uh, 1995, and then again in the Lucia case a few years ago. Yeah, 2018. The courts need to be sensitive to effectively leaving individuals who challenge these violations without a meaningful remedy, and that the remedy needs to consider the incentives or disincentives that will naturally flow from it. And the point we made in the brief was courts at a minimum should not disincentivize individuals from raising these issues. Mr. Calcutt, as I mentioned earlier, has been at this for many years now. And the signal sent by a decision like the panel decision in this case effectively tells future litigants, don't bother raising issues like this, because at the end of the day, 
not only can't we give you a remedy, but in this case, we're not even going to decide the issue for you. Um, and so future litigants, when they see a decision like that, I think they say, why bother? Especially if they need to pay their lawyers present those issues for years on end. And that's that's a, an expensive proposition. Well, and a, so, and, a, and a lawyer would counsel you not to bother, I would think. I, I think you know, so. At least in the Sixth Circuit, if this yes. decision is upheld. Yes, I think that's right. Um, so that was, that was the second point we made. Um, well, that, that's terrific. Hopefully, uh, Russ, the, the, the Sixth Circuit will listen to you, will listen to NCLA, will decide that this issue is important enough to, to retire a Sixth Circuit event, and we'll, we'll be sure to let the audience know uh, what happens. But, but thank you for, uh, for taking the time. It's been a great to hear about the